We're reading Genesis chapter 13 from verses 1 through to 18, which is the whole chapter. It's on page 14 in the Red Bibles that you'll find around you. Genesis chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where he had reached, where he had been earlier, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they, moved to, while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarrelling arose between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarrelling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are, to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Marmor at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. Thank you, Fiona. Do please keep um, that. Uh, your Bible's open there. Hang on, just make it the right size for me. Uh, do please keep uh, your Bible's open, partly because I may accidentally quote a slightly older version of the Bible. And it'll be really exciting to see where I do that, won't it? So you follow along uh, with your Bible, the spot where I make mistakes. Where will you look? Slightly dangerous starting a sermon like that, because everyone goes, oh, hang on a second, see like this. Um, where will you look? In this historical account from about 4,000 years ago, two men look around. Verse 10. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. 
Lot looked around and saw what he could have right now. Verses 14 and 15. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are, to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. Abram was told to look around and see what he could not have now, but was promised to him in the future. Two men look around. One one looks and sees what he can have right now, and one looks and sees what God has promised to give him. 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to Christians in Rome and said that Abraham's example directly applies to you and to me. Romans chapter 4 verse 12, no need to turn there. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Then he goes on in verse 16. Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those of us who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Abraham's the father of all who have faith in God's promises. But what is faith? That's a question the Bible answers directly in Hebrews 11 verses 1 and 2. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. In other words, faith is not looking around and building your life on blessings you can see. Faith is looking around and building your life on the blessings that God has promised. But that is not easy. Whether this is your first time in church, and if so, you're very welcome, or your thousand and first time, trusting in God's promises, something you can't see, is the hang-up of all hang-ups. It's a problem every single person in this room is at least familiar with to some degree. Think about it for a minute. Why would you do that? Who is the more sensible of the two of these people, Lot or Abram? A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Lot logically and sensibly invests in what he can have right now. Abram waits to see if he will get pie in the sky. Even old English proverbs like that suggest that living by faith, as Abram did, seems crazy and unwise. And if you're visiting today and don't consider yourself a Christian, I just want to acknowledge that living by faith does indeed seem crazy to us as well. Those of us who are Christians can understand how you feel. We're also rational, sensible human beings. In fact, every single person in this room has to face this problem regularly. I meet with several blokes from church uh, every Friday morning uh, for a Bible study. And every week, all of us share stories about how God has promised this, but our lives are like that in whatever way that looks like for each of us. So why live by faith and not by what you see? There are three reasons from this historical account. God's promises 
turn our failure to our advantage. There are always problems we can't see, and we shouldn't settle for too little. Let's look at the first of those. God's promises turn our failure to our advantage. Put yourself in Abram's shoes, please, if you would, for a moment. Back in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, God promised Abram that he would make him into a great nation, that his name would be a blessing, and that all the families on earth would be blessed through him. So Abraham goes on this journey of faith, traveling from place to place, obeying God as he trusts in God's promises. But what was almost the very first thing that happens to Abraham after God promised that? It was there in chapter 12, verse 10. You can see it over the page. Now there was a famine in the land. How do you think Abraham felt at that moment? God's given him amazing promises of fruitfulness of blessing, that he would be a blessing to other people. And almost straight away, boom, he faces a famine. A famine, the very opposite thing to blessing and fruitfulness. How do you feel when you come to somewhere like this, a church, and hear God's promises and then head home and boom, cancer? Boom, you lose your job. Boom, Your teenager has gone on to ecstasy. How do you feel about God's promises then? Put yourself in Abram's shoes. How did he feel? And how did he feel about God's promises at that moment when he doesn't have enough food to eat? He's forced to migrate. He becomes a refugee. Chapter 12, verse 10 goes on. And Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. And if you now remember what Abraham did in Egypt, it reveals that this famine had rocked his confidence in God's promises. And so not feeling confident that God will look after him, Abraham took his personal safety into his own hands by lying to the Egyptian authorities. Verses 11 to 13. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are, When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but let you live. Say to my sisters that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. My wife says to me, I would love it if you said to me, I know what a beautiful woman you are, but please don't say the rest of what he says. Okay? That's one of uh, my wife's sort of requests, which I've honored so far. Never pretended she was my sister yet. With your eyes fixed on what you can see in this world, what Abram did was a completely sensible thing to do. There are refugees around the world who lie all the time. Why? Because they're worried about their safety. They've escaped somewhere unsafe and they're worried how they're going to be treated. They don't know how they're going to be received. Abram was a refugee and he lied to keep himself safe. But there's a really big difference between Abram and all the other refugees who feel they have to do that. Abram had a specific promise from God to him personally that not only would he survive, but he would be blessed. He would thrive and be a blessing to others. But after hitting the famine, Abram was struggling to trust that promise that God would look after him. 
And his lie led to all sorts of problems. Pharaoh nearly defiled himself with another man's wife. It brought a curse down upon Pharaoh's house. And Abraham was forced to leave Egypt, having burnt his bridges with one of the world's biggest superpowers. Now, I've made so many mistakes in my life. might be hard to believe that. Trust me, I have. Some of them you know about, and some of them only my wife knows about. You have also many, many, made many mistakes in your life. Some of them are known to other people, and some of them are known only to you and to God. When you make a mistake, it feels as though it sets you back. It feels as though it's pulled you down. It feels as though you go backwards and must retake that ground, or that you've moved from stream A to stream B, or from stream B to stream C. Successes move us forward in life, but mistakes move us backward. It seems so logical, doesn't it? That's perfectly rational to think. If your eyes are fixed on things that you can see. But God's promises turn our failure to our advantage. That's the nature of grace, which is the way that God works with his people in his world. In other words, God rewards our obedience and he redeems our disobedience. That might seem horribly unfair, and it is. In other words, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8 this time, verse 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. When Abraham was doing what he was told, God was working for Abraham's good. And when Abraham wasn't doing what he was told, God was working for Abraham's good. What was the result of Abraham's disobedience back in Genesis 12, verse 16? Back over the page. Pharaoh treated Abram well for Sarah's sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. Now, Abram was wealthy before he went to Egypt. He had a big caravan that could travel across the Levant, and he was significant enough to be noticed by the Egyptian royal family. But now he leaves Egypt with even more blessing. Chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him, into the Negev. Now Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Abram disobeyed God and somehow came out better from the deal. How outrageously kind is God? Abram made a mistake, he was disobedient, and yet God's promises turn our failure to our advantage. Everything works for the good of those who love him, even our mistakes, bizarrely. And so even his mistake turned out to bring blessing to Abram's life. Think again, how does Abram feel now? Well, how do you feel when people treat you well and you don't deserve it? That kind of love, that kind of grace and kindness has two effects on people. In life, either it makes us soft hearted and humble as we accept the kindness that we haven't earned and we can see we haven't earned it. Uh, And in fact, the kindness is the opposite of what we know we deserve. Or we become hardened and angry at the person being kind to us and bitter 
because we feel that we should have what we deserve and don't want to accept something that we feel we don't deserve. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous German Christian who stood up to the Nazis in World War II, described both of these responses uh, very well. He said the disciples realized that they too, uh, that they also were Jesus' enemies and that he had overcome them by his love. It is this that opens the disciples' eyes and enables each one of them to see their own enemy as their brother because the love Jesus had for them. In contrast, by our enemies, Jesus means those who are quite intractable and utterly unresponsive to our love. Those are two pictures of the way people respond to grace and love. Two ways that Abram could have responded to God. Either become hard-hearted or become soft-hearted. Abram was wrong. He made a mistake. God was kind to him and blessed him through it because God's promises turn our failure to our advantage. And as a result, Abram left Egypt even richer than he'd been before. And Abram responds well to God's grace with a soft heart. So he renews his relationship with God. Verses 3 and 4. And Abram journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and I, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. I'm sorry, Lord, Abram said. Let me go back to where we were. I made a mistake. You've been kind to me anyway. Let me pick up where we left off. That is how God deals with people who make mistakes. How does Abraham feel now about living for the promises he can't see? Think of your mistakes, your failures. What is God's response to them? He gave you his son to die so that you could be forgiven and receive a legal entitlement to God's blessings forever. That's how God responded to every mistake you made. How does that make you feel about living for God's invisible promises? And how will you respond to them moving forward? God's promises turn our failure to our advantage. That's a positive reason to live for them, but there's a negative reason as well. There are always problems we can't see. There are always problems we can't see. As great as the blessings of this world are, they always come with problems. Now, one of the most profoundly philosophical movies of all time is, and this may surprise you, but it's true, a Michael Bay movie starring Martin Lawrence and Will Smith. Bad Boys 2 is about two cops trying to bring down a drug lord. And one of the deepest scenes about the human condition I think that's ever been put on the silver screen is that one where the drug lord is having a conversation in the basement of his house where he's hiding piles and piles of cash. Now, he can't move the cash because it will be caught by the police. But being stored in his basement, it has attracted an army of rats and his millions are slowly being eaten away day by day. Eventually, he loses his temper and he fires a wall of bullets into the rats at the money and screams to his henchmen, this is such a stupid problem to have. That, my friends, is life. That is how deep Michael Bay movies can be. Jesus said that that is exactly what life is like. 
in a statement that can only be described as maybe a prophecy partially fulfilled by bad boys too. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. There are always problems we can't see. You can't anticipate the rats coming and eating your money pile in your basement. Verse 5 of chapter 13. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. Fantastic. Abram is so blessed that it even overflows to his nephew who's with him. But, verses 6 and 7. So that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Abram and Lot are now very successful business owners. They both have significant farming empires. And as is so often the case, problems begin to arise in the HR department of their respective organizations. And people can't get along with each other. Both businesses were competing for the same resources and probably the same customers. Blessing in this life always comes with a sting in the tail. Almost always one that you can't see until it gets you. I was talking to someone this morning who has been really successful in his career. I mean really successful. But he's now quitting his job because of stress and overwork that came because of that success. It is his very success that's causing him his life's health and other problems. How ironic. Welcome to life, guys. Yeah? You either do badly or you do well and therefore do badly. That is exactly what it was like for Abram and Lot. The word for rich here in the original language is the same word translated elsewhere as glory or glorious. It literally means heavy which in this part of Genesis is probably a deliberate play on words. To give you a sense of how having lots of wealth, like Abram and Lot do, lots of blessing in this life can actually weigh on you and weigh you down. An old Bible commentator, a guy called Matthew Henry, said this, There is a burden of care in getting riches. Fear in keeping them, temptation in using them, guilt in abusing them, sorrow in losing them, and a burden of account at last to be given up about them. There are always problems we can't see, even for the super wealthy and rich like Abram and Lot are. And the narrator hints at another one in verse 7. It's very subtle. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. In other words, people who would quickly take advantage of division in Abram's settlement, just off to the side of the picture, lurking. There's always stuff to worry about in this life. And we'd love to think there's some magical solution to this. Perhaps the gospel means everyone can magically get along if you say the right words, or, or everyone does a, a personality test. We get people in, and they do their Myers-Briggs type indicator, and, and we find out how they can, the shepherds can work along with each other. Or they get in other consultants and put in place the right internal processes, and suddenly everything gets solved because they move the paperwork in the right ways. Or perhaps they graciously ignore the problem, and it goes away. Sometimes, maybe that happens. But you know what? Often, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. 
And in his wisdom, Abraham sees that. He's wise. He sees this problem won't just go away. He realizes the only thing they can do is to go their separate ways before these little tensions become big divisions. How, how sort of down-to-earth is this story? And it's 4,000 years ago. It feels very down-to-earth to me. As idealistic as you want to be, sometimes that's life. It was life then, sometimes it's life now. Abram is wise, and so he takes action to prevent the situation getting worse. But he's also gracious. And despite being the older guy with more status, so he could have dictated what's going to happen, instead he gives up his right to choose and instead gives Lot the choice of where to livestock. Uh, Verses 8 and 9. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And here's the decision Lot has to make. The question is, on what basis will he choose where to live? Now, of course, you could speculate about other options. He could say, no, I, don't want, to, I want to stay with you, actually. Or he could say, I don't want to leave the person who has God's blessing. Let's try and find some other solution. You could probably imagine a, a million ways that Lot could respond. I'm not entirely convinced that the narrator of the story wants us to do that. At least that doesn't seem to be the main point of what's going on. Abram lays out a really clear choice, decision for Lot. Go that way or that way. And I will go the other way or the other way, depending on what you decide. The question is how will Lot make that decision? How will he make that decision? And what can we learn from the way that he does it? Well, Lot makes his decision based on what he can see. Verse 10. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus, they separated from each other. Now, that is a completely logical and rational decision to make. Lot looks around and makes a hard-headed business decision. Lot makes his mind up based on what he can see. But there are always problems we can't see. That is the nature of life. There are always the rats that will eat away at the pile of money. And so, verses 12 and 13, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom, and what does the narrator tell us that Lot didn't know? Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. That is the reality that Lot couldn't see. And that reality will play a big part in his undoing and the entire of the rest of his life. It was hinted at in verse 10 as well. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Destruction of two major cities. That is the future Lot has to look forward to. As we'll see in future weeks, it's not only tragic, it's a disgusting decision. A total disaster for Lot and his entire family. Now there's nothing hinted at, other than that, that he's doing anything wrong here. Other than he's just looking at what he can see 
and making the best decision on that basis. But the problem with that is there are always problems we can't see, and there were problems that Lot couldn't see either. Each of us this week will have all sorts of decisions to make. Some of them will be minor decisions, and some of them will be major decisions. Some of us will trust our gut, and others of us will plan very carefully. But no matter what you decide, there are always problems you can't see in the decision you make. That's the one thing I can guarantee uh, to you. And there's only one way around that. There's only one way to deal with that, and that is to make sure that your decisions are shaped and informed by the promises made by someone who knows the future. That is the only way to anticipate the unknown unknowns, by someone who knows the unknown unknowns. What Lot should have done, I don't know. But the point is this. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, don't play any part in his decision-making process. He looks at what he can see, and there's no mention made at all of the promises to Abraham. That's the important thing. That's what's missing from what Lot does. Finally, a final reason to live by faith is that we shouldn't settle for too little. We shouldn't settle for too little. I have a friend who used to be the top professor of psychology at Bristol University. And he once said to me that after all the research that's been done on the academic performance of children, there's only one factor that can strongly predict um, their academic performance from the age of four until they reach the age of 21. There's lots of parents now like that. Like, what is this? What is this? That factor is the ability of children to defer gratification. Children who have the ability to defer gratification until later will make the most of the opportunities in their education and perform at the very top end of their peers. Children who are unable to defer gratification will not make the most of their opportunities in education. That is, that, that apparently all the research shows that. And you can see the difference between the two groups by the time they're 21, apparently. Lot settled for what he could see. Abram had a much bigger ambition. Verses 14 to 17. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northwards and southwards and eastwards and westwards. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Lot took what he could. Abram didn't settle for less than what God would give him. Lot took what he could. Abram didn't settle for less than what God would give him. And what God promised was far, far, far greater than what Lot could see, without the sting in the tail, but in fact, with all sorts of extra benefits in the tail, Abraham could not even have imagined in his day. Lot became the father of two minor, now dead, Middle Eastern nations, Abram became the father of all who believe, Jews and Gentiles alike, including the ancestor 
of Jesus Christ himself. Two men who looked in different directions. Lot looked at what he could see. Abraham looked for the promise he couldn't see. Whoever you are this morning, whatever your background, wherever you're from, if this is your first time in church or your hundredth time, God calls you to do the same thing as Abram. Why? Because God's promises turn our failure to our advantage. That's the nature of grace. Because there are always problems we can't see, so make sure that your decisions are shaped by the promises of someone who knows the future. And we shouldn't settle for too little. Don't settle for what you can take now. Don't settle for less than what God promises to give you in the future. For Abraham, what that meant in practice was verse 18. So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Abraham made his home like a stranger in a foreign country, we're told in the New Testament, and built his relationship with God. Abram said, wherever I am, I am an international foreigner. Whether you're here today and you're Chinese, whether you're um, Japanese, whether you are Ethiopian, whether you're French, whether you are American, whether you're British, whether you're Scottish and you consider that to be British or Scottish and not British or Scottish is British or whatever, you know, whatever you kind of think, whatever you are, Make your home like a stranger in a foreign country and build your relationship with God. This week, this month, this year, God calls you and me to look to his promises and not to look to what we can see. Where are you looking? Why should we do that? God's promises turn our failure to our advantage. There are always problems we can't see. We shouldn't settle for too little. So really the question is this. Why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we look to God's promises in light of that example? Let me say a quick prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you're a God of grace. You're a God who rewards our obedience and is unbelievably kind to us and blesses us even when we make mistakes. We thank you, Heavenly Father, you're a God who knows the future. And so when we look to your promises, there aren't nasty things waiting around the corner. And we thank you so much, Heavenly Father, that what you promise us in the future is so much greater than anything we could have now that we could see. Please, we pray, raise our ambitions above what we can take for ourselves in this life. Make us fall in love with Jesus again and help us to live as foreigners in this world building our relationship with you based on our faith in your promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.